Thank you so much, Elaine, for that Bible reading. And uh, good afternoon once again, everybody. This may need turning down a little bit because I think I've got a slightly louder voice than Elaine's. <laughs> well, good afternoon uh, and welcome again to St. John's. We are continuing in a mini sermon series that we began last week entitled Four Gospels, One Jesus. And over the course of four weeks running up to the beginning of Lent, we're trying to think and consider a little bit about each of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. And uh, we began last week thinking about Matthew, and I introduced last week the idea of a road traffic accident at Old Street Roundabout, not very far from here, and uh, tried to invite people to imagine themselves coming up towards that roundabout where there'd been an accident from different angles and the different kind of perspectives you might have on the events, how you might see things differently from different angles. Uh, according to where you are coming from. And using that as an analogy to think about the particular different emphases of each of the gospel writers. And, sorry, we've got a really nasty buzz and hum here on the stage. Just turn the power off. Thank you, that's better. Um, and I was suggesting that Although each of the Gospel writers has a particular different perspective on the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when we read all of them together and we understand their different emphases, we gain a fuller picture of who Jesus is, and, and in doing so, a fuller understanding of how Jesus relates to us and his will and desire for our lives. So we talked about how um, in Matthew, he presents, uh, Matthew presents Jesus particularly as the new Moses, the teacher, the one who, uh, who reveals to us God's law and reveals to us that um, love is the fulfilling of the law and that there's a new way to live, a new way to live in love and, and that we can enter God's promised rest um, through obedience to him. So Jesus is primarily seen as this new Moses figure. When we come next week to Luke and then in a couple of weeks' time to John, we'll be thinking about Jesus as a healer, the one who works uh, reconciling work to draw people back into relationship with God and with one another. Uh, and then in John, how Jesus primarily is revealed as Lord, the one who is sovereign, who is uh, over all things, over all history. But today we are thinking about Mark. Now, Mark is probably the earliest of the gospel accounts written, written maybe around AD 66, 67 or, or thereabouts. And Mark's gospel is simply concerned with Jesus's public ministry. That is to say that it doesn't contain any of the kind of birth, the nativity, the Christmas story narratives that we've been hearing and enjoying uh, last month. Rather, uh, Mark's Gospel begins with John the Baptist bursting onto the scene and announcing and proclaiming that there is one greater than him about to come. And then Jesus arrives saying, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And all of Mark's Gospel is just concerned with Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, and then his death and resurrection. In fact, by halfway through Mark's Gospel, by chapter 9, Jesus is headed for Jerusalem and is into the final week of his life. Half of Mark's Gospel account is concerned with just one week of Jesus' life, the week in which his death and resurrection occurs. Now, when I first became a Christian at the age of 14, I loved 
the Gospel of Mark. It was my favorite gospel. It was the first one that I read all the way through. And I think I gravitated towards it because it struck me as being a bit like an action movie. Mark's gospel is the one which bounces through the narrative really quickly. It's full of words like immediately, straight away, right after, suddenly. In, in movies, they might be called jump cuts. You very quickly go from one scene to the next. The action progresses. And you get a real kind of compelling sense that something exciting is unfolding and happening. And like most teenage boys, I quite liked action movies. So Mark's gospel was like an action movie of Jesus's life. And Jesus, perhaps like uh, an action hero. So Mark's gospel is principally concerned with what Jesus does. It's all about activity and action. Certainly that's true in the first half. In the second half of the gospel, there is perhaps a greater emphasis on his teaching. Um, but it's always permeated with action. And thinking about how I view Jesus characterized in Mark's gospel, what I see of Jesus, I think that Jesus appears to me to be a bit like a sheep in wolf's clothing. Now hear me out, I've got that the right way around. You're familiar with the expression a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I want to suggest to you today that in Mark's gospel, Jesus is a sheep in wolf's clothing. And I'm going to get onto that in a little while to explain just what I mean by that. But the question that seems to go run all the way through Mark's gospel from the very beginning to the very end is, who is Jesus? What is his identity? What kind of man is this? What kind of mission does he have? If Jesus is a Messiah, what kind of Messiah? What kind of ministry? In the very opening verse of Mark's gospel, Mark sets out his stall and makes it clear that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. He uses these messianic titles. And then immediately after, he quotes the prophet Isaiah to show that Jesus' is coming is foretold and anticipated by the prophets of Israel. So this is not some new flash in the pan. This is, in, this is um, part of one kind of continuous story of how God is acting to save his people. But after those first opening verses, we go into this period of secrecy about Jesus' identity. It's sometimes called the messianic secret in Mark's gospel. Because certainly in the first half of Mark's gospel, every time Jesus seems to heal somebody or perform a miracle or an exorcism, he says, be sure not to tell anyone about it. And it seems quite peculiar. Why does he keep on saying, don't tell anybody about me? Why is he saying, keep it a secret? What's the point of the secrecy? Well, I think we need to answer that in a few different ways. Firstly, and practically, it allowed Jesus to escape too much unwanted attention early on. Every time he did go and perform an exorcism or heal somebody, Mark comments that word about him spread throughout the region. People started to follow and Jesus kept on having to retreat. Why didn't he want to gather a big crowd to him straight away? Well, perhaps because he knew that he was headed for Jerusalem, perhaps because he knew that ultimately he must go and take on all the principalities and the powers of the world uh, through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And, and that to attract too much unwanted attention too early might get in the way of that. Perhaps he wanted to focus on gathering his disciples around him and revealing the signs of the kingdom of God through the healings, through the miracles so that people would have some grasp and understanding of God's goodness and God's will. But secondly, it also made people engage and think for themselves about who Jesus is. It's more intriguing. 
And I think it compelled people, Jesus' first audiences, those who followed him, the crowds, the first readers of Mark's gospel, and still compels us to think, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? What, what do I believe? Who is this man? Thirdly, I think for Mark, as a writer, it's a rhetorical device that allows him to build tension and allows everything to shift after Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. And that was the second passage that Elaine read for us uh, today. And uh, it's a hinge in Mark's gospel. It comes right in the middle of the gospel in chapter 8. There are 16 chapters. So verses, chapters 1 to 8 are all this action, all the, this traveling around. And then from chapter 8 onwards, after the confession at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. In the very next chapter, in chapter 9, Mark recounts the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed in all his glory. And it's as though now the secret is out. Now, this is public news. Why does it hinge on Peter's confession? Well, the author of Mark is thought by many to be John Mark, who was a companion of the apostle Peter. And so much of what Mark had learned about Jesus' life was through the accounts that Peter passed on to him. And uh, as a friend of Peter, the centrality of Peter's confession need not surprise us, makes sense. And just as from that point onwards, Jesus goes on a journey to Jerusalem, we too go on a journey trying to reach our conclusions. Now, there is a conclusion offered to us at the very end of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 16, uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, there is a Roman centurion standing there. Of course, a Roman centurion, not a Jew. Um, so somebody, if you like, from the Gentile world, seeing and suddenly discerning and, and, and understanding the identity of Christ. And what does he say? The Roman centurion, when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, surely this man was the son of God. It's as though Mark has structured the entire of the gospel to to say, this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was foretold. And then there's this kind of period of secrecy. And then there's a revelation and Peter sees who Jesus is. And then they're set towards Jerusalem for this final confrontation, this final showdown. And then the conclusion that the Roman centurion reaches is the conclusion that Mark wants us, the readers, his audience, to reach as well, that Jesus surely is the Son of God. So Jesus is not portrayed by Mark as a sort of exalted religious teacher. He's portrayed as a man of action. One commentator describes Mark as portraying Jesus as a heroic man of action, an exorcist, a healer, and a miracle worker. And also Jesus is the Son of God. In the um, traditional tetramorph, which is uh, the icon of the four gospel writers, I showed it on the screen last week, I'm afraid I don't have it this week to show you. Um, The tetramorph portrays the four gospel writers in relation to the four living creatures of the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation. And um, Mark is associated with the, the figure of the lion, the figure of the lion. A lion who is a fierce but also noble creature. We sang earlier on, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles. That's the image that Mark wants to portray of Jesus. This perhaps fierce, perhaps ferocious, uh, perhaps volatile character, man of action. As an aside, it's worth noting that in the opening chapter, Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be with the wild animals, it says. 
After his baptism, he's driven into the wilderness where he is with the wild animals. Which wild animals? Well, we don't know, but perhaps lions, perhaps jackals, perhaps hyenas, perhaps wolves. And there is an inherent danger. There's a sense that he's gone into the, he's gone into the wilderness for a time of testing, a time of trial, a place where there could be real danger around him. But of course, God delivers Jesus and he comes back. Now, I think this is significant because if the first audience of Mark's gospel are Christians in Rome in the mid to late 60s, then they know something about danger and trial and test. By the second half of the 60s in Rome, the Christians were being persecuted. Christian communities knew that they faced the possibility of being thrown to the lions to the wild animals in the circus. It was a very real threat. Indeed, the Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero, used to throw garden parties. And uh, he was a particularly cruel and violent man. And his favorite way of throwing a garden party was to take Christians and bury them up to their thighs in the ground and then pour pitch over them, tar, and then set light to them and use them as candles. It's lovely, isn't it? Very Game of Thrones. Um, but that was that. So the Christians knew that following Jesus was threatening. It was risky, it was dangerous. dangerous. But I think that Mark puts this episode at the beginning of his gospel as though to give a message. Jesus has been there too. Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals. Jesus has faced the threat, faced the danger, and God has delivered him, and he can deliver and rescue you too. And this theme of deliverance, rescue, salvation comes through Mark's gospel. So in the opening passage that we uh, read today, Jesus is a teacher. He goes into the synagogue uh, at Capernaum when the Sabbath comes and begins to teach, and they're amazed at his teaching because he has authority, not like some of their other teachers. But rather than being stuck in teacher mode, it says, a man in the synagogue, possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And Jesus replies, be quiet, has an exclamation mark in the text. And then, and it says, said Jesus sternly, then come out of him, exclamation mark. So Jesus is not just a teacher, he's a, he's a teacher who acts. He's a teacher with authority, a teacher who exercises power, a teacher who commands. He's a man of action. He's a man who delivers people from the possession and the captivity of evil spirits who rescues people and the people note that this is a teaching which issues instructions that are obeyed what extraordinary authority what man is this who has such authority so Jesus is able to speak and act in anger against injustice and evil this is so far from any image we might have of gentle Jesus meek and mild and this is why I say that um, that Jesus bursts onto the scene in Mark's gospel like a bit like a wolf or a lion. There's something volatile and ferocious and edgy about him. But there's a mission, and the mission is deliverance, rescue, and salvation. Now, I said earlier uh, you, you've, that I think that Jesus in Mark's gospel is a sheep in wolf's clothing. You've probably heard of a wolf in sheep's clothing. And what that means is someone who looks gentle and mild on the outside, very mild-mannered or nice, but inwardly they're actually ferocious and violent. I think that Jesus in Mark's gospel is more like a sheep in wolf's clothing. Why do I think this? Well, I think it's, 
hinges on Peter's confession in chapter 8, that second passage that we had read for us. It's a key episode in which Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. Now, Peter, like many of his contemporaries, expected the Messiah, the, the chosen one of God, to be a military leader who would overthrow the Romans. He expected, as many did, an uprising of wolves or lions, setting God's people free and restoring the kingdom of Israel. Perhaps they expected a Messiah who would have the kind of posturing of contemporary Putin's Russia, the great Russian bear, or, or even contemporary Trump's campaign to make America great again. Maybe that was what they wanted, somebody full of nationalistic pride and fury who would vindicate the people of Israel against their occupiers. But Jesus immediately challenges Peter on this idea. And he reveals that his messianic vocation, his true identity as Messiah, is to be the Passover lamb, the sheep led to the slaughter, the one who is sacrificed to make atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus is a sheep in wolf's clothing. And this leads to an upturned expectation about what following Jesus will mean. Because all of a sudden, Jesus reveals that following him is about self-denial, self-sacrifice, taking up our cross and following Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Following Jesus is about losing our life. The way of salvation, the way of rescue and deliverance, is the way of self-giving love. One of my favorite images um, in the Bible is the image of God that ends the Bible in the book of Revelation, where in the great heavenly throne room of God there is a throne, and on the throne there is a lamb who has been slain. We might expect at the end of the Bible, at the end of history, to see this great mighty warrior king, triumphant, dominating over all his foes or enemies, but we don't. We see the one who has the appearance of a lamb that was slain, a reminder that the whole of human history hinges and turns upon God coming and offering himself with self-giving love. And so there's no more self-actualization, no more self-realization, no more self-discovery. Rather, there is letting go of all that we cling to so that we might find the freedom that God gives. I often find this image helpful. It's the old image of the monkey trap. And you know the way a monkey trap works is you take a, a beer bottle or a bottle of something and you, you tether it to the ground or bury it in the ground and put some monkey nuts in it. And the monkeys go in and they squeeze their hand in and they take hold of the nuts they want to hold. And then when they've got them in their fist, they find themselves trapped because they cannot extract their fist through the bottleneck. They're caught, they're stuck. There, And the only way the monkey can get free is to let go of the nuts that it clings to so dearly and then extract its hand. And so often it seems to me that that's the pattern in our lives. When we grasp desperately onto anything that might bolster our fragile ego, when we desperately try to replenish and build up our, our own sense of self-worth or self-esteem, when we, when we cling on to our dreams and our ambitions for uh, our lives, 
whether that's career or spouse or children or money or power or whatever it might be, when we cling desperately to those things, we find ourselves shackled and enchained, enslaved, trapped. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If we want to know deliverance, rescue, freedom and salvation, we let go and we experience the glorious freedom that God brings us. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles. But our God is also the lamb, the lamb that was slain. He shows us that the true way of life and salvation is the way of self-giving love, self-sacrifice. But do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we really trust that in our hearts? Um, I ended last week by thinking about what, what my favorite passage in Matthew's gospel was. And as I did that again, thinking about Mark's gospel, it's very hard for me to choose. But perhaps if I were going to look at one passage in Mark's gospel that has always resonated with me, it would be the story in Mark chapter 9 of uh, Jesus and his encounter with the father of a boy possessed by an evil spirit. And if you remember the story, um, Jesus comes and, and the man, the father, says, uh, if you can, set my son free. Drive out this evil spirit. Jesus replies to him, do you believe that I can? Do you trust that I can? Do you have faith? And the father replies, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus goes on to deliver this boy. But it's always resonated with me, this idea that within our own lives, there is a, there is a sort of intermingling of belief and unbelief all at the same time. Faith and lack of faith, trust and doubt all at the same time. We live in a society which doesn't think much of the way of self-giving love, of self-sacrifice, of self-denial. And yet that's the life that those of us who follow Christ are called to. And it's challenging. So much within us doesn't really believe that that is the way into life. So much within us yearns for more control, power, status, influence. But Jesus shows us another way. Jesus is the sheep in wolf's clothing who invites us to lose our life for the sake of him and his gospel that we might truly find rescue, deliverance, freedom. And so my prayer so often for myself is, God, I do believe, I do trust this vision of Christian life, of Christian discipleship, of wholeness. Help my unbelief. Heal me of all those parts of my life where I fail to express trust and confidence and faith in this way. How about you? Perhaps if you're anything like me, you know what it feels like to have a, a mingling of belief and unbelief in your hearts. Let's pray as that father did. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Why don't we stand together and pray? Father, thank you that in the Gospel of Mark we see this extraordinary um, reality of your son, Jesus our Lord. This one who is powerful, 
who is a, in a way a ferocious lion, a, a powerful wolf, able to deliver and rescue, to command the evil spirits, to command the wind and the waves, to calm the storms. Thank you that you fight our battles. But God, thank you also that we see that the, the true way of life is the way of self-giving love. That it is to follow the sheep, the lamb, the one who gives himself for the sins of the whole world. And God, we do believe, help our unbelief. Lord, this day, for any of us who are wrestling with important decisions, who are wrestling, struggling in broken relationships, for those of us who are, whose lives are plagued by um, fear or doubt, God, would you give us belief and trust, confidence in you, so that we need not grasp desperately to the the frail strands of our lives, but rather we might let go, that we might be set free, that we might lose our life for the sake of Jesus. And in doing so, we might truly find freedom, love. Pour out your spirit on us, we pray. And in every place of struggle and unbelief, every place where doubt and fear plagues us. Would you bring us life and hope and love? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you um, uh, be seated and remain in an attitude of prayer and Tanya is going to lead us in prayers of intercession. Let us pray. Father God, we pray for our world. We pray for